3.06 on this Wednesday afternoon. Thanks for all of your texts at 630-630. The phone number here, 496-0063. And a lot of texts on our last guest from the Cuddlery in Vancouver. Interesting. We might circle around uh, back to it again. And certainly, I promised you this uh, off the top of the show. We had spoken with Tim Reed, the uh, the CEO over at Northlands, about the plan that was unveiled today, the uh, $170 million renovation of its um, yeah, of the Northlands site. It's called Vision 2020. Uh, that announcement... Um, you know, some 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 people would say really good news, and others right now saying ah, not good news at all. The the announcement to turn the grounds at Northlands Park into an urban festival site to host concerts obviously a blow to horse racing Alberta, the track there that has been you know a staple in the city for so long. Chief Executive Officer Shirley McClellan joins us now. Hi, Shirley. Hi, Jaylen. Good, oh. good to talk to you. Nice to talk to you as well. Now. Gosh, that's a tough day for you guys. Well, it is. Um, it's a tough day for our industry. Um, that's really what it's a tough day for. You know, we uh, struggled with one A track in the province for, you know, a number of years waiting for Calgary. Mm-hmm. Uh, Open Calgary April 1st last year, started racing 25th, I think it was, of April. Had a we've had a great year there. Yeah, uh, lots of new uh, patrons, uh, new people coming into the business, and took the stress off of Northlands <laughs> Park. Uh, so now here we are. Here we are, and I know you know my family uh, over the years spent a lot of time uh, down at uh, down at the park. Um, you know, we had the, the my, my in laws had had horses. My my husband, you know, tells stories about pretty much growing up inside uh, some of those <laughs> some of those buildings down there, and yeah. to see it to see it gone. I mean, for a lot of people, there's a lot of memories there. Horse racing began in Alberta in 1905. It's been a tradition for a very very long time. You know, Shirley, when were you made aware of of this this proposal and, and what was coming down the pipe? Well, uh, you know, I will say that Northlands have been uh, fairly free and fair with us, fair with us, because uh, we've, uh, Rick Lollisher, our chair, and I have had discussions with President uh, Reed uh, over the last few months. And, uh, you know, we were very much aware of uh, what they were looking at with the loss of Rexall, the reconfiguration of, of uh, Northlands. Uh, and of course, all of us became really aware of it about the 17th of December when uh, somehow this uh, plan that was announced today became uh, partially public. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, there's been, you know, some consternation with our industry. Uh, but we have had those discussions with um, with Northlands. Uh, no question, we wish we had more lead time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's um, you know back to um, the drawing board with one track, a track in uh, 2017 for sure. What what does how much money? I'm curious. You know that track and the gaming that goes on there. How much? You know, how profitable is is the track? Well, you can go to Northland's <laughs> financial statements to get the full answer because, of course, they are funded in uh, two ways. They're yep. funded by uh, uh, straight 
for operation of the slots, which we have nothing to do. Oh, okay, all right. And then they are uh, they are funded through what we call a racetrack funding agreement by us for the operation. Okay. And the funding that we give them is based on a, a friendly audit we did with an external uh, accounting group to ensure that we were fair in what were costs for racing. And uh, we adjusted the the percentage of the uh, actually by ten percent when we did that. So they get twenty eight point seven five percent. That's okay. reviewed every year. Our policy is that uh, we ensure that you know that you are covering the costs of racing and receiving a reasonable return on your investment. And. Uh, I think that anybody who goes into this business looks for that. What does this mean now? One more year and then it's done? What what happens? We don't know. Mm. Uh, first of all, as I understand it, uh, Northlands, what they put out today is a plan. Mm-hmm. It's going to the community for discussion. Uh, we will have to move ahead. We can't wait to hear whether the community or the city or the province or Anybody else or the Northlands Board decide that this is the be-all and end-all, they have told us that they are not racing after 2016, at least that's what they said today. Uh, with a, And then something else was said that, well, maybe, but I, I didn't <laughs> follow that very well. So we, uh, as a board, will move ahead. We will, uh, we've been uh, aware of this, so we've not been sitting back waiting for today. We've been looking at at what uh, we might do for racing, uh, we have a number of things that are in the, on the go. We have a memorandum of understanding with government that ends on March 31st. And, of course, we're negotiating uh, a new one. This has become late because, of course, we have a new government, and they have many things on their plate. And while they've given us a fair amount of time, uh, we have not reached the conclusion of our negotiations okay. on the extension of the agreement. So that's yeah. that's paramount, number one. Uh, we've, I, I will tell you, Jaylen, we've had interest uh, expressed by calls of people interested in uh, building a track and facility in this area somewhere. Okay. So there's, you know, uh, as we said in our... Uh, we said that in our statement. We're trying to be as open as we can. Uh, we are going to meet next week as a board, and uh, we will have invited all of our industry partners, so all of the horse associations, mm-hmm. thoroughbred, standardbred, paint, uh, quarter horse, uh, community thoroughbreds, and our operating tracks, uh, to come to uh, sit down with us. We'll tell them what we know, uh, look for ideas from them, and we will develop our options for going forward. So some things uh, some things possibly on the table, but again, uh, you know, it's uh, it's time to get moving ahead, not where you want to be, but it sounds right. like you're being, you know, you're going to be as optimistic as you can and, and try to move forward. I, I don't suspect anyone, well, it, it would be asinine to think otherwise, that, um, that anyone wants to see um, Edmonton, uh, and horse racing, maybe in in Alberta, uh, die a slow death. No, no, no. I, I no. I don't think so. It's too much of a part of our history. 
Millerville, a little community, uh, celebrated their 110th running of the Millerville races <laughs> on July 1st last year. So uh, I remind people that Alberta is horse country. We have over a third of the horses in Canada in our province. Uh, we have the most complete horse industry with spruce meadows, polo, uh, rodeo, backpack, uh, <laughs> pleasure, western, you know, uh, 4-H. Uh, it's just very much a part, and racing has been a big part of that. And we have some of the best breeding barns uh, in this province uh, in Canada, and I would say in the U.S., and some would say the world. They are state-of-the-art, up-to-date, uh, you know, for the uh, breeding, uh, mm-hmm. training, uh, and care of, uh, of, of, obviously they breed for the racing industry, but yeah. some of our horses go to, uh, so a quarter horse, they may go to be a cutting horse, a roping horse, a, yeah. they don't turn yeah. out to be a track horse. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> some of our thoroughbreds jump, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, standard red serve can be a working horse, so uh, it's uh, it is a big business here. The investment uh, we consider that the industry assets are over seven hundred and fifty million dollars. That's not tiny. Yeah, we have a huge economic uh, impact, particularly in rural, but no question for jobs and so on on track in uh, Grand Prairie, Lethbridge, Calgary, and certainly has been here. Uh, we employ a number of people that, uh, I always tell people this is a groom trainer, jockey, uh, but especially a groom trainer. This is not a life for everyone. You get up at four o'clock in the morning and you look after your horses and gallop them or pace <laughs> them and uh, maybe you're finished at 10, you have a few hours off, you go back at, you know, depending on if it's a race day. Uh, and you're maybe ten, done at 10 at night. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but interestingly enough, Jaylen, we continue to attract young people to our school. That We we have a groom and exercise rider school that graduates students out of Bowles College program every year. Nice. Students. And they've gone on to be well-known jockeys and or work in the industry. Unfortunately, sometimes we lose them to other provinces yeah. because we're the only school in Canada. Shirley McClellan, Horse Racing Alberta, joining me on the phone this afternoon, just chatting about the announcement today from uh, Northlands about the uh, the plan there, which does not include um, the racetrack anymore. So what happens next? But as Shirley said, and as you as you said, Shirley, they, we start meeting, we'll start talking, we start making plans, and uh, looking forward to exploring ideas with other partners for options for racing in Edmonton. So uh, I, I would suggest that you're saying right now, horse racing in Edmonton is not dead, at least not just yet. All right, Shirley, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us and to your interest for uh, in what I think is just a fantastic industry with 7,000 hardworking men and women yeah. and over 7,000 horses. Well, wow. look forward to getting out and uh, and seeing you guys soon. Thank you, Shirley. Come, to, come down to Century sometime, too. Okay. And remember, remember, <laughs> we're still racing at Narasons Park. Absolutely. Thank <laughs> exactly. you.
Okay. okay. Thanks, Kaylin. Bye-bye, Bye-bye now. Shirley McClellan from uh, Northlands, uh, well, horse, uh, from Horse Racing Alberta. The the email that they put out, the statement that they put out following uh, the announcement today from Northlands uh, gives the background on horse racing and the breeding industry in Alberta, saying it's a rich in history, tradition, and culture. Horse racing began in Alberta in 1905, and we thank Northlands for being a part of that tradition for over 100 years. Obviously, we're disappointed in their decision to leave racing at Northlands Park. They've been a strong partner over many years. However, we respect their decision and wish them well in their new endeavors. We will work with Northlands Park as they transition out of racing to minimize the impact on our industry. And again, I I think that really, you know, that whole working together to make this, uh, to try to make this work. It goes on to say in Alberta, the horse racing and breeding industry is a way of life. Every day, over 7,000 Albertans work hard caring for over 7,000 horses in communities across our province. Horse Racing Alberta remains committed to continue to race, entertain, provide jobs, and contribute significantly to Alberta's economy. Horse Racing Alberta is aware of interests in building a track in the Edmonton area and will explore with our industry partners options for racing in the Edmonton area. A number of you suggesting, hey, what about West? Uh, You know, maybe out Enoch Way with the casino out there. A number of you texting that in this afternoon. We'll keep our eyes out and our ears out and stay in touch with Shirley to make sure we'll bring you all the details on any plans that happen next. So earlier today, Northlands unveiled its details for what it calls an ambitious $170 million renovation of its uh, 64-hectare site. We talked to Tim Reed uh, just after 2 o'clock and then just talked with Shirley McClellan uh, from uh, Horse Racing Alberta. Because it does not include Northland's racetrack, it talks about turning that area into an urban festival site. So again, quickly, if you're if you're just catching up, uh, the highlights of this plan, this revitalization plan, uh, the transformation of Rexall Place into what it would be called the Northlands Ice Coliseum, a two-floor arena, arena housing six or seven sheets of ice with seats up to 3,000 spectators. It would feature exterior upgrades, including glass wall, cutouts, uh, blah, blah, blah. Estimated cost for that uh, facelift, about $85 million. Uh, The development of a unique urban festival site at Northlands Park with the capacity to host mega-scale concerts, festivals, and other major events for crowds of between 30,000 and 140,000 people. Uh, And refurbishing the Expo Center's current Hall D into a 5,000-seat space for smaller concerts and sporting events. The rental plan includes replacing the hall's current roof and raising it some 16 meters. Uh, When we were talking with Shirley just uh, a few moments ago saying, you know what, they are committed to exploring options. They're disappointed, of course. Why wouldn't they be? But uh, looking forward to exploring with industry partners options for racing in the Edmonton area and saying that they've already received phone calls saying, hey, you know what, Let's talk. So what does that mean? Now, your thoughts on this, on the whole plan itself, lots of text coming in this afternoon. Uh, And it says, because this is from Chris, so you think with that revamped Northlands Coliseum, the prices for everything will be out of this world, just like the downtown arena? Good question. Lots of people always wondering about the cost and the prices of things. Brian says, I love the look of this plan. However, I would like to see an all-weather facility for concerts and festivals be added. I believe the money is worth it. 
Uh, here's another one. It says every world-class city has a thoroughbred racetrack. Looks like Edmonton is getting a further downgrade. If you want to find out more about this plan, you're wondering where to find all the details, just check out the Northlands website right now. There's lots of information on there. You can go to 630ched.com. There's lots of links to the proposal right there. Um, Jay says the whole thing with redeveloping the Northlands area is a complete and terrible joke. The arena is outdated and the parking is both terrible in terms of distance from the buildings and it's extremely overpriced, as evidenced by Northlands firing their entire entire parking lot staff earlier this year. Their system is corrupt and they are uh, and they are going to be further supported by my tax dollars. He talks about crime in the area, saying it's rampant and the area is akin to inner city ghettos elsewhere. The entire Northlands property should be raised to the ground, rezoned, and affordable housing and commercial development should be encouraged instead. It's time to move into the new century instead of preserving this piece of property. But one of the things that they are saying and proposing, yeah, you know what, hotels go there. If you re- zone some some of this and you build it back up as a commercial area and have people still going up there maybe more condos hotels as another tourist destination in the city as a place for people to come for hockey tournaments sporting tournaments you know think about it the minor the minor hockey stuff that sort of thing could it make the difference? Could it be the difference? You can keep texting me at 630-630, the phone call. Well, actually, we're going to a break right now. We have an interview on the other side, but there's stories as well on the 630-CHED Facebook page. I'll be back after the 330 News. Ah, yes. Red, red wine. Red, red wine. Neil Diamond and red wine, it's and I'm a happy girl. Two of my most favorite things on the planet, if you've listened to the show at all. And I'm really, really excited about our, our next guest. We're kind of all over the place today on the show, and I know that. But if you love wine, and specifically Italian wine, you're going to love our next segment. The Zanata Winery is a third-generation family-owned vineyard. The wines that have been produced over the years consistently receiving high marks by wine experts. And here in Alberta, most of you are likely a little more familiar with the Zanato Amarone, that deep, rich wine, which Zanato is, you know, become famous for, but it's also very well known, and I think, in fact, became famous for its white wines. And we're pleased to have in the studio this afternoon Alberto Zanato, who oversees all aspects of production at the winery in Italy. It was a long flight. He flew in this afternoon just for us. No, 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 he didn't. Welcome to the show, Alberto. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. I'm really happy to have you here as well, so much so I forgot to turn on your microphone. So there we go. Can you start by giving us a little bit of history of the winery? Because, see, I'm reading about it. First, it looks like an absolutely spectacular place, and what a gorgeous place to grow up in and around the winery was uh, founded in 1960 and uh, is located in uh, veneto region in particular in the province of verona nearby our big lake called garda lake mm -hmm. the village where we are uh, from is peschiera del garda 
in this uh, wonderful uh, landscape we produce uh, Lugana wine, one of our top uh, uh, white wine of the, of the region and uh, also uh, red wine that are produced mostly in the Valfolicella wine region. My father started um, to produce wine uh, from these two regions in the 1960 and uh, he expanded the production uh, firstly in, in Italy, in the other region of Italy and uh, later on also in uh, um, European countries and in North America as uh, now we are in more than 50 countries yeah. uh, with our wines. Very much a family operation to this day. I mean, it was started by your parents and you knew your, your sister running it now. How challenging and how rewarding has it been to have it as a family business? Well, uh, family business is uh, very important for uh, all uh, Italian uh, producers. Most of uh, wineries in Italy are owned and managed by Italian uh, um, families. So it's tough because sometimes uh, you have uh, to discuss uh, <laughs> in the evening, at lunch, at dinner, always about your work and what you have to do tomorrow, what you have to to do in the next months so you never stop to work because uh, uh, yeah, you you bring home your uh, your uh, your work and uh, sometimes uh, you is beautiful you enjoy to talk of your uh, work sometimes uh, is uh, a discussion that uh, can finish uh, not in a good way <laughs> so <laughs> it depends that's fantastic um, what are some of your earliest memories of the winery having grown up there what do you remember? I mean, it just must have been a very interesting childhood for you. Yes, I was following my father uh, anytime uh, I could. So, in particular, in the summertime when I was uh, uh, on holiday from school, I used uh, to, to follow my father in the cellar, to look in him to taste the wine <laughs> or in the vineyards, uh, smelling uh, the the, the ends of the, of the vines and the grapes, uh, tasting the grapes because I couldn't taste the wine at that age. <laughs> so I, I like to taste the grapes when they were very ripened. Did you have a choice whether or not you wanted to go into the wine business or was it just an automatic that you were going to be a part of the family business? Uh, because I grew up uh, uh, looking at my father uh, and uh, looking at his job uh, with great uh, passion and great uh, um, effort to do the best uh, wines. I went automatically in uh, my family business because uh, for me it was natural. I enjoy to work in the family, I enjoy to continue the family business and uh, this was uh, also for my sister. Every, every one of us uh, enjoy to continue our family business and to improve uh, and bring uh, uh, with our uh, um, distinctive uh, character and way of working uh, our um, contribute, contribute to, the, to the grow of the winery. I, uh, I was just thinking about this question and I think when I first started drinking wines and I started with white wines because I thought, well, I, uh, red wines 
was at the time, but I started drinking white wines and it was Italian white wines. And now we're talking 20 years ago now. 20-ish years ago, let's say. And I think back then, I think a lot of us have that image in our head of Italian wines. You know, that I think it's a bottle of Chianti with the straw <laughs> with the straw basket. And once we finished it, we'd put a candle in it and, and melt it all down the sides. But I think for a lot of us who drink wine, uh, Italian wines were that first stepping stone into to learning and, and finding out about it. How has Italian wines changed over the past couple of decades? It's uh, changed a lot. Uh, I would say that uh, uh, after uh, 1986, uh, when uh, there was a big scandal in Italy about uh, methanol, uh, I think that uh, lots of winery changed, uh, changed uh, totally the, um, the way of uh, producing wine, uh, focusing uh, their attention more on quality, starting from the selection of the grapes, uh, improving uh, the technique of vinification, uh, changing uh, the old uh, cask or the old barrels that uh, were present in the cellar. So they invest uh, a lot on uh, quality in order to, to become uh, uh, a real uh, good player on the, on the uh, wine panorama of uh, international wines. And Zenato, that uh, was at the, at the beginning, in the 70s, 80s, was already thinking to produce quality wines. So my father has always uh, touched us to produce quality, to pay attention to every step of the production, also in a, in a sort of mania maniacal way in order to, to control every step of a production for quality. I think I saw on the website the, the output, the production now uh, from the wineries, about 2 million bottles a year, is that correct? See, Zenato produce uh, 2.5 million bottles a year nowadays, yes. We export in about 50 countries and uh, we, we are happy of having uh, reached these, uh, these figures. One of the things that I found interesting about Italian wines, when you start looking at things like Australian wines or California wines, it tends to be based um, or defined by the varietal of grapes. So it can be Cab Sauv or it can be Shiraz or whatever it is. Where in Italian wines... It's named after the region that it's grown, not the grape. Is that right? Exactly. Our appellation are uh, um, appellation of uh, areas, of uh, region or uh, small village. So you have to know the area of production. And then when you know the area of production, you can understand the, the grape varieties that compounds uh, uh, a wine. So it's much more difficult to understand the Italian appellation compared to yeah. California or uh, France. Uh, it's much more difficult. Because Valpolicello then isn't, aren't great. That's not grapes. That's the area where the grapes were grown. Exactly. exactly. Oh, my goodness. Hey, this yeah. is going back to a wine class. I took a, a while back. Um, and the other thing about Italian wines, and I think that goes, this next question will go back to what you touched on when there was a bit of a controversy and that sort of thing, but with the labeling of like DOC and what is it, DDC? 
DCOG. What, do, what, what does that mean for someone who's going into a wine store, picking up a bottle of Italian wine and thinking, what, what is that? Most, most of us might not even know what that is. Uh, this appellation, DOCG, that is uh, the most important we have in Italy, or also DOC, it's, uh, um, it's important to know that it's from a specific area and from a specific type of grapes. And the, um, the wine, before being released on, uh, on sale, has to be checked by a commission of, um, of taster but also has to be um, analyzed. Okay. So if all the components of the wine and the, the, the organolectic uh, um, taste of the wine are conform to the disciplinary of production, you are allowed to put your wine on sale. Okay, wow. All right, so it's making sure that exactly what that is is what that is. Gina, now you know what it means. You didn't know what it meant well, earlier. I, I was gray Okay. It, right? Mm. Like, <laughs> <laughs> now you know. Um, we, when we talked about uh, your dad a little bit earlier, is there a lesson that your that your dad taught you that drives you still every day? Yes, my father uh, taught me uh, an important thing that is also our motto for the production and uh, is to aim for quality and produce only quality wines. You will see that in the long run this policy will pay off. And it's paying off. Uh, so far, uh, so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, two and a half million bottles a year, without a doubt. You know what? We need to uh, take a quick commercial break uh, right now. It's 3.47 on the 6.30 Chet Afternoon News. Alberto Zanato from the uh, Zanato Winery in Italy joining me in studio this afternoon doing uh, a wine and food pairing tonight at one of my favorite restaurants, Vivo Restaurante, out uh, in the West End, but was kind enough to join us uh, this afternoon to talk a little bit about uh, about wines, one of my favorite things, and I know many of you feel the same way. So when we come back, we're going to taste a, a couple of wines. I'm, I'm sorry you can't taste them, but I'll tell you about them. But curious to know a little bit more about uh, wines and, and food pairing. Like, do you really need to... Do you? I'll ask you this afterwards, but you can think about it. Do you really need to eat food to get the full taste of the wine? Can I just drink the bottle? And enjoy the bottle. That's coming up. 350, Andrew is not here today, uh, sitting in his seat. Alberto Zanato from the Zanato Winery uh, in, it, it's in Italy, and, and I, I can't, like, I, I, I want to say that it's on Lake Garda. Right? That's not the proper way. Correct. You say it much better <laughs> than, than I do. But a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful spot uh, doing wonderful things in wine. And, you know, I'm curious to know, um, I, I asked you about the food thing, and we'll get to that in a moment. But more and more people are drinking wine. I think in the past, certainly, you know, 10, 20 years, uh, wine has become more and more popular, certainly in North America. Certainly in North America. I mean, in, in Europe, different story. Why, why do you think that is? Uh, well, uh, uh, wine in the past was, uh, at least in Italy, was considered uh, something to, to have for uh, your um, 
life for uh, your um, uh, is, uh, part of your meal food and wine were always together now the conception of wine is more of uh, a product of pleasure mm -hmm. so people um, have um, less um, uh, less time but when they want uh, to to go out for dinner they want to match uh, the the food with a nice uh, bottle of wine and uh, obviously uh, in uh, in north america uh, is uh, starting a process of uh, um, increasing the the people who uh, want to drink wines because uh, every human person wants to discover a new product mm -hmm. uh, new uh, things uh, that can make their life uh, uh, better so wine i think if uh, drink in moderation is uh, a, a beautiful um, element of your life it can uh, make your dinner your lunch more um, enjoyable alberto do i need to eat food with my wine to fully enjoy the wine to bring out the the flavors in the wine i mean i've done the food and wine pairing and when it's done probably it's 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 fantastic well, there's uh, lots of wine that uh, can be drank uh, by themselves as aperitif before to start dinner, but uh, most of the Italian wines are um, really wines to be enjoyed with food. Okay. We are a master of uh, uh, good food, <laughs> good wine, and we like to enjoy our uh, wines with uh, our regional traditional food mm -hmm, okay. so for us uh, wine has to go always with food but uh, you can enjoy also sometimes uh, a nice uh, sparkling wine as aperitif or a nice white wines so whatever makes you happy at the end of it all right <laughs> a couple of questions that from our listeners if if you don't mind um someone just says in a bottle of wine how many grapes would there be is that a, can you can you judge on that well it depends uh, some uh, uh, wine are produced from one or two grapes variety uh, uh, maximum some others are uh, blended four or five uh, different types of grapes in this case is very very difficult to understand what are the percentage and the, yeah. the, the varieties present in the blend I think Nicole is going to Ah, yes, yes. Uh, okay, okay. I, uh, I didn't understand the question. I'm sorry. No, no. Uh, well, uh, I think a couple of thousand uh, berries of uh, grapes are present uh, in, a, in a bottle of Amarone because mm -hmm. in Amarone we have to dry the grapes. So we need a double amount of berry for the production of this uh, very iconic and uh, important uh, wine of our uh, area. Uh, the other, uh, the other uh, wines, the, the fresh uh, uh, grapes wine produced from fresh grapes so we we need uh, 1000 berries more or less well and then someone wanted to know about the casks that you use when you're making the the wine are they are they what are they wood they oak they metal what are they or uh, yeah Ah, okay, we, we use uh, stainless steel tanks uh, for the production of uh, white wines mm -hmm. 
and for uh, the red wines we firstly ferment in a stainless vat and after the vinification we put the wine in uh, in barrels and casks okay. of different size yeah and the and the process to make the amarone is is quite lengthy isn't it it takes uh, quite a while and and it, it it results in a fantastic wine it tends to have a higher alcohol percentage too <laughs> yes a, a bottle of amarone uh, is uh, is uh, something unique uh, you have uh, to 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 wait at least four years uh, to see a good vintage of amarone on the on the market because uh, we start uh, with the selection of the grapes uh, in our vineyards when uh, uh, then we put the grapes to dry for three four months and uh, after this we make the vinification and uh, after this we do the aging in uh, in large barrels so all this process can last uh, from four to five years before we have uh, uh, bottled the wine and released on the market. I'm running out of time. I, I needed an hour today, but uh, the Lugana, I'm saying that I don't think correctly, but I'm trying my best, is really one of the wines that you became famous for. What? Tell me about this wine. Why, why is it so special? Trebbiano is a native vine that ripens late. It's cultivated to the south of Lake Garda, an area that benefits from a clay terrain and the temperate microclimate of the lake. Yellow in the glass with greenish highlights, it presents strong citrus notes on the nose that blend with riper hints of fresh fruit peach and apricot. It's beautiful. On the palate, the savory mineral vein is enhanced by the clay composition of the land of origin, which bestows great longevity. Mm, it's, it's beautiful. Salute, Salute. in Italy we say. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. It's absolutely beautiful. And you know what? Uh, with that, I am out of time, unfortunately. It's uh, 3.57 on the 6.30 Ched afternoon news. Again, uh, Alberto Zanato uh, from the Zanato Winery, Lake Garda in Italy. You, you'll see his wines uh, across beautiful wine stores, uh, liquor stores uh, across Alberta. He's joining us in studio this afternoon tonight at an event at uh, Vivo Restaurante. There are a couple of tickets still left. If you uh, want to get in touch with them, you can call the restaurant over there. Alberto, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your knowledge. I've really appreciated it. The pleasure was mine. Thank you for inviting me today. Thank you.